this is a greater than sign. It's used in math to communicate that one number is greater or more than another number, like 4 is greater than 1. Now, in order for this expression to be true, obviously, a larger number has to be on the left side of the equation and the smaller number on, on the right. What about Jesus? Are we more likely to put Jesus on this side of the equation, the greater than side, or put Jesus on this side, the less than side of the equation? Jesus is greater than, and there's so many things in, in, in our world and in our lives that want to place themselves on the greater than side of that equation, and many times we choose to put those things there. But the truth is that Jesus is greater than everything. Than everything. Jesus is so much better. And it doesn't matter what we put on that side of the equation. If Jesus is on this side of the equation, if Jesus is who He is, then Jesus is greater than everything. When we align our lives with that truth, it is a beautiful and a powerful and fulfilling and a whole thing. So over the next four Sundays, we're going to be looking at one of Paul's short letters, a letter to the Colossians, because one of its central themes is precisely this, that Jesus is greater. Over and over again, this letter emphasizes the saving power and lordship of Jesus in every corner of the universe, every corner of society, every corner of our hearts and lives. My prayer and my hope is that uh, the supremacy of Jesus would just ring beautifully and powerfully true for us uh, as a word of hope and as a word of challenge for, for our lives. Let us pray. God, open our hearts and minds to your word for us this day. We pray that it would take root there, that it would grow us, transform us, that we might live for you and bear fruit for your kingdom. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we begin um, in chapter 1 of Colossians this morning and invite you to listen for God's word. This is verses 1 through 14. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossa, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We've done this since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people. You have this faith and love because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You previously heard about this hope through the true message, the good news which has come to you. This message has been bearing fruit and growing among you since the day you heard and truly understood God's grace. In the same way that it is bearing fruit and growing to the whole wor- in the whole world. You learned it from Epaphras, who is the fellow slave we love and Christ's faithful minister for your sake. He informed us of your love in the Spirit. Because of this, since the day we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you and asking for you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're praying this so that you can live lives that are worthy of the Lord 
and pleasing to him in every way, by producing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, by being strengthened through his glorious might so that you endure everything and have patience, and by giving thanks with joy to the Father. He made it so that you could take part in the inheritance in light granted to God's holy people. He rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. He set us free through the Son and forgave our sins. This is the Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Colossians is one of the letters that was written by Paul while he was in prison. And this letter is somewhat unique because it's a letter written to a church that Paul actually did not start himself and a church which he never had an opportunity to visit. But he's clearly invested in their life and in their growth as new followers of Jesus. Colossa was located in uh, the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is now south, uh, southwest modern-day Turkey. And it was a, a, an important city on a central trade route in the area. The Colossian church was established by Epaphras, whose name we just heard in the Scripture reading. Um, and he's the one who told Paul about the church, gave an update on how things were going, uh, going on there, what things were going on there. And so it's clear from Paul's introduction and his tone filled with thanksgiving that most of the news is good. The most of the report from Epaphras is good. Paul praises them for their faith in Jesus Christ. He gives thanks for their love for God's people. He gives thanks that the, the gospel message has grown and is bearing fruit there just as it's been growing and bearing fruit uh, all over the world. Um, but Paul also knows that these followers of Jesus are new. <laughs> They're new in their faith. And so I bet Paul feels almost like a mother bird to a certain degree, right? A few weeks ago, we watched um, a mother robin and her baby birds in a nest that's in a jasmine vine outside of our house. And we watched as that mother bird flapped around the nest with concerned love as those baby robins began to, to make their way out of the nest and, and flap and try to fly awkwardly. Um, for days, you know, they had been cared for in the comfort of that nest, and now uh, the time had come for them to leave and make their own way in the world. Of course, this means new opportunities and new challenges and new, and new dangers. So similarly, here, right, we have a little church in Corinth um, just starting up full of energy and full of promise, but hardly aware of all the, the danger and, and the pressure and the challenges out there, almost like getting ready to come out of the nest. And here's Paul, except Paul can't be with him in person. He's in prison, and so he's, he's being a mother bird from afar in writing this letter to them, praying for them as they're, as they're making their way uh, in the world. And based on a few things that Paul says later in his letter, we can, we can glean a little bit about what confronted them and what may have challenged them as new infant Jesus followers. And it's centered around a kind of a false teaching, a kind of mishmash of, of errors, superstitions, misunderstandings, Elements included um, devotion, apparently devotion to angelic beings, taboos about certain holy days, and a, a brand of theology that tied into Gnosticism, which was a new kind of religious movement of the day that um, it was a belief system that claimed that our physical bodies and what we do with them in the physical world doesn't really matter. What matters is the spiritual realm and, and acquiring the secret knowledge that allows you to ascend through different levels of the spiritual world to reach a kind of a state of, um, I don't know what you would call it, um, I guess, enlightenment, 
Um, which is really convenient if you think about it for the way the Greco-Roman life functioned then, because Greco-Romans lived in a way that was, uh, was extremely, a lot of practices that we would consider very uh, perverse or self-indulgent. It's kind of convenient to say that the body and, and the physical uh, doesn't, doesn't matter as much. So anyway, this, all of this mismatch of teachings, the Gnosticism, the worship of angelic beings, this um, misunderstanding around observance of, of holy days, all of this, um, it would have acknowledged Jesus to a certain degree, but it would also kind of hedged its bets with all of these spiritual add-ons, you know? Like, Jesus is great, but maybe Jesus is not enough. Like, you need Jesus and, like, Jesus and worship of these angels, Jesus and harsh self-denial, Jesus and this secret knowledge. Of course, the problem with that is you just end up with split allegiances, right? Like one foot in one place and the other foot in another place. I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we struggle with this at times too. We struggle to trust that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is greater, and so we also kind of hedge our bets. We end up splitting our allegiances, and it's like we have one foot in Jesus' kingdom and one foot in another kingdom, somewhere else. Like right now, one foot in the kingdom of Jesus and one foot in the kingdom of guns. One foot in the kingdom of Jesus, one foot in the kingdom of, of mammon and money and stuff. One foot in the kingdom of Jesus and one foot in the kingdom of career or job. One foot in the kingdom of Jesus and one foot in the kingdom of political ideology. One foot in the kingdom of Jesus, one foot in the kingdom of still trying to earn God's love. One foot in the kingdom of Jesus, the other in the kingdom of competition and and comparison. One foot in the kingdom of Jesus and the other foot in the kingdom of guilt, unforgiveness. One foot in the kingdom of Jesus the other foot in the kingdom of self, me. So that's why pretty quickly in Paul's letter, we're introduced to this idea of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul really wastes no time because after he offers this prayer of thanksgiving, he then offers a prayer of guidance that climaxes with this statement. He, God, rescued us from the control of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son he loves. He set us free through the Son and forgave our sins. So in other words, Jesus' kingdom is greater and we've been relocated to it, transferred into it. Jesus' kingdom is greater, so no more one foot over here and one foot over here. Paul is borrowing language here from the Exodus story, the Old Testament. Can you hear it? A little bit of it. Exodus, of course, God delivering God's people from slavery in, in Egypt. In fact, the word rescued in Greek is the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in reference to God's deliverance of Israel. Rescued. When Paul talks about rescuing people from one kingdom and transferring them to another one, when Paul talks about redemption and forgiveness, it's a reference to Exodus. What God has done through Jesus, for the Colossians and for us, is a new exodus. A new exodus. We're not rescued from slavery in Egypt, but we are rescued from slavery to sin. We're not transferred from Egypt to the promised land, but we are transferred from one way of life to a new way of life. 
So for Paul to become a follower of Jesus is to, to leave Egypt, to leave the kingdom of, of sin and move into the inheritance of the kingdom of light with God's family. For the Colossians, it's to leave the, the kingdom of the, of the Greco-Roman way of life or this uh, mismatch of different, of, uh, hedge your bets, vague spirituality and to transfer and to anchor your life in the kingdom of Jesus and in His life. For us, it's to move into a completely new way of being, a completely new way to be human. It's to be transferred to a greater kingdom. The language is dramatic, rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Jesus. We're not talking about like moving down the street. This is a change in zip codes. And it's interesting because if you think back to the Exodus story, one of the biggest challenges that Israelites face once they are freed from slavery is the desire to go back to Egypt. Like even though they had been liberated from, from slavery there, even though God was leading them to a new kingdom, they still at times felt the pull of the old kingdom, of, of Egypt. Once when they were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness, they complained to Moses and effectively said, you know, it would be better if we just had stayed in Egypt. If we went back to Egypt, it would be better. They had a hard time trusting that what God had in store for them was so much greater than what they had experienced. While they may have been liberated for slavery, they were living as if one foot was still in Egypt and one foot on the border of the promised land. The implication from Paul in this, in this beginning part of the letter is that if we've been transferred from one kingdom to another, we've been transferred to a greater kingdom, don't look back to Egypt. Don't try to bring the things of the former kingdom with you into the new one, into the far greater kingdom. This transfer into a kingdom is marked by redemption and, and forgiveness. And the freedom is, is greater. Not just because God has freed us from something, but because God has freed us for something. God deliverance, God's deliverance of Israel wasn't just from slavery in Egypt. It was for joyful obedience to God as God's chosen three people through whom God would bless the whole world. So Paul makes it clear that what makes Jesus' kingdom better, greater, is also how we get to live there. He wants to ensure that, that Jesus' followers orient themselves accordingly to to truly experience all that the kingdom has to offer. In one week, our family's taking a trip to St. Augustine Beach as a family, on my wife's side of the family, and we're renting a house there together. We're looking forward to it. About a week ago, my sister-in-law forwarded us a message, an email from the realty company that said something to the effect of, uh, you know, make sure you maximize your vacation experience and take advantage of all that St. Augustine has to offer, right? And then it proceeded to list all the good places to eat, all the museums to visit, the places to rent kayaks, the historic sites to tour. Its purpose was to, to help us thrive and, and make the most of our time there, assuming that most of us, it, was, it would be new for most of us. 
Similarly, it's like Paul wants to make sure that the Colossians, that we understand how to acclimate to this new reality, this new kingdom, this new zip code, this greater kingdom. Because this greater kingdom means the opportunity to live greater lives, greater not in the sense of of power or pride, but greater in the sense of more full, more fulfilling, more whole, more joyful, more purposeful. In other words, how to maximize life with Jesus in his kingdom. Like you've been rescued, you've been transferred into a new, better, greater kingdom. Here's how to make sure that both feet are planted there. Here's how to take advantage of all that Jesus' kingdom has to offer. And so Paul writes, I pray that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will and wisdom. I'm praying this so that you can live lives worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him by producing fruit in every good work, growing in knowledge of God and being strengthened through his glorious might. Growing in God's wisdom, producing God's good fruit, being filled with God's power. God's wisdom, God's fruit, God's power. That's the greater life in the greater kingdom. That's how I make sure we got two feet planted there in Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jesus' kingdom is greater. This kingdom offers us redemption and forgiveness. No other kingdom does that. Jesus' kingdom is greater. This kingdom offers us deep meaning and purpose rooted in the unchanging truth of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. No other kingdom does that. Jesus' kingdom is greater. This kingdom promises us abundant life in the here and now and into eternity. No no other kingdom does that. Jesus' kingdom is is greater. This kingdom is powerful and advances through love and and humble service. No no other kingdom does that. Jesus' kingdom is, is greater. This kingdom brings about the eventual restoration and renewal of all creation. No, no other kingdom does that. Jesus' kingdom is greater. It welcomes all people. No other kingdom does that. Jesus' kingdom is greater. This kingdom has an economy of abundance, not scarcity. No, no other kingdom has that. Jesus' kingdom is greater. Because Jesus is greater. May we live like it's so.